Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and uh, we're Stuff You Should Know crew. <laughs> we're the Juice crew. Yeah. Big Daddy Kane. I'm Big Daddy Kane. All right, I'm Biz Marquis. I'll take it. You're Redheaded Kingpin. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you don't remember that guy? No. no. Sorry, we're, we're still talking about our music sampling podcast, which yeah. we just recorded. Instead, we're going to talk about something else. Something called diamonds. I kind of hate diamonds now, by the way. Do you? This this yeah. article is... Well, I thought it was good, but after reading all this stuff, I'm just like, it's just a big false market. Well, I mean, they're still pretty. But yeah, they have a lot of... They got a lot of problems. Let, let, let yeah, me we'll, tell we'll you get a story. All, all right? <clears throat> Chuck. Yes. Have you ever heard of a magazine called The Atlantic? Uh, yeah, I used to get that. Have you ever heard of a year called 1982? I was 11. Okay. Well, in 1982, mm-hmm. in that magazine, The Atlantic... I didn't read it back then. You didn't? No. I, I didn't either. I was uh, six. I wasn't yeah. reading The Atlantic yet. <laughs> Not yet. I came when I was 10. Um, in 1982, a guy named Edward J. Epstein wrote an article for The Atlantic called, Have You Ever Tried to Sell a Diamond? And I got this from Nito Rama, by the way. Okay. Um and in the in the article, he wrote about uh, someone else who who conducted an experiment to try to find out what's going on with the aftermarket for diamonds, right? Okay. So this guy for a magazine called Money Witch Magazine, I don't understand the name at all. Um, in 1970, uh, the the guy bought a 1.42 carat diamond for 745 pounds. That's a pretty good deal these days, but wow. Back then, I would say it was an average price, right? Sure. So he waits for a year to allow it to appreciate because supposedly diamonds appreciate in value, right? Yeah. And then he takes it around to all of the uh, gem dealers in London, and the highest offer he got for what he paid the year before, 745 pounds, was 568 pounds. Hmm. So he's like, huh, I, I want to figure out what it, Maybe if I let it appreciate a little longer, it'll work. And this guy obviously had other freelance work in the meantime because he waited until 1974 and did it again. This time, he finds out that his diamond shrunk from 1.42 carats to 1.04 carats because one of the dealers switched the diamond out on him when he was having it appraised in 1971. What? That's not even the worst. The guy buys another diamond, 1.4 carats, right? Okay. Takes it around. He he buys it at, for two thousand five hundred and ninety five pounds okay. in nineteen seventy four. I think um, he waited a week, took it around, and the highest offer he got was a thousand pounds. Boy, this guy's he's just, just a dummy, hemorrhaging money, <laughs> right? Yeah. But the point is, is the reason why these things are like Cadillacs the moment you drive them off a lot. And they never come back in value right. is because there is no aftermarket. And the reason that there is no aftermarket for, for diamonds is because of one single diamond cartel yeah. and their advertising campaigns, yeah. De Beers, yep. um, which we'll talk about yeah. in this. But there's a lot more to diamonds than just all the shady business sure, and sure, the sure. monopolies and the cartels and yeah. the artificial markets created. There is billions of years of history. One of the cool things about a diamond is that... <clears throat> When you're wearing this, 
when or, or looking at a diamond, holding it. You're beholding possibly a mineral that's over, that was created a billion years ago. That is cool. Very cool. I love that. And I very much appreciate the craftsmanship behind oh, yeah. what goes into making a diamond uh, in its final form. Because, as every kid knows, diamonds are as hard as it gets, supposedly. And they're a girl's best friend. That's another thing, too. There's a lot of slogans around diamonds. Yeah. All created by De Beers. Let's let's talk about diamonds. What are they made of? Because they're so expensive, they must be made up of like kryptonite and um and diamonds. unicornite and <laughs> uh, yeah, and diamonds, right? No, Josh, uh, you know, you're being coy. Uh-huh. They are made of carbon. Uh it is basically carbon in its most concentrated form. Right. And carbon's a pretty common element, it's one yeah. of the four essential uh, ingredients to life. We breathe it. We're made up of 18% carbon. Pencils are like at least 60% carbon. <laughs> Uh, and diamonds, if you want to get down to brass tacks, are not rare at all. Um, there are um, many, many more precious gems that are much rarer than diamonds. Including um, some types of diamonds. Colored diamonds. Yeah. yeah what we're sure. mainly talking about in this one is transparent diamonds. Those yeah, sure. Typical, like, white diamonds. Yeah. But, yeah, colored diamond, a naturally colored diamond is... Yeah. Nice. So... Um, ice. Let's call it ice. Yeah. <laughs> Or bling. Do you remember when bling used to be called bling bling? Like there were two blings? Bling bling? Yeah. No, did they just shorten it to one bling at some Uh point? Who's they? Who decides this stuff? MTV. Okay. Urban Dictionary? Yeah. Um, So you got carbon. It's pretty pretty ubiquitous. Yes, very abundant. It naturally occurs in three forms, right? Uh, Graphite, diamond. Fairly soft. Yes. Diamond, very hard. And then fullerite. John Fullerite. Which is, uh, it's a mineral made of perfectly spherical uh, molecules of exactly 60 carbon atoms. Yeah. And it was only recently discovered in 1990. Yeah. And supposedly diamonds are no longer the strongest um, mineral. Oh, uh, really? Somebody synthetically figured out how to um, combine fullerite into another something else. And it's like 11% harder than diamonds. Huh. On the most deaf scale? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Boy, that, that sampling uh, episode really had an effect for the rest of the day, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's carrying over. Um, it, diamonds, uh, so basically, if you have graphite, mm-hmm. you have a misformed diamond. Yeah. Is one way to look at it. Sure. Diamonds form under very specific uh, conditions um, that are found typically about 100 miles or 161 kilometers beneath the Earth's surface. Yes, in the mantle. As long as temperatures are um, above 400, I'm sorry, as long as temperatures are above 752 degrees Fahrenheit, 400 degrees Celsius, um, and there's at least 435,113 pounds per square inch of pressure, you will form diamond when there's carbon. Heat and pressure. Yes. And carbon will make a diamond. If either of those two things are not met, you're going to get graphite. Right. So th- these diamonds that we're looking at today, like we said, were formed like 50 million, 100 million, up to billions. That's pretty cool. Of years ago um, under these conditions. And um, more recently, say, I think 20 million, between 20 million and 1.1 billion years ago, uh, heavy magma um, eruptions that are about three times from depths, about three times that that blew up Mount St. Helen. Yeah. Um, 
push diamonds toward the surface and form what are called kimberlite pipes. Yeah, magma is one of my favorite words, by the way. Yeah. I don't know why. Uh, yeah, and uh, basically they act as like an elevator and they push the diamonds and other stuff up through the mantle. Happened very quickly over a matter of hours. Yeah. And uh, But it's all underground. So it's not like, it wasn't like a Mount St. Helens. It's still impressive. It's very impressive. Yeah. Um, the magma cooled inside the pipes and left behind these veins of kimberlite rock. And that's where the diamonds are. Right. And kimberlite's bluish. And I guess the diamonds are inside the kimberlite? Yeah. I looked up kimberlite and that's what it looked like. It looked like a big bluish rock with spots of crystals. Right. And you crack that open you have raw diamonds. That's right. Uh, that's not the only place you can find diamonds, though. You can find them, uh, alluvial diamond sites or riverbeds that were originally, they all came from, from the mantle, but they get pushed around by things like glaciers and water. Right. And they can end up thousands of miles from where they started. Those are called, um, alluvial diamond sites. That's right. Yeah. Did you say that? I did. Are you sure? I'm positive. I don't think you did. Okay. Um, diamonds, like you said, they're not, as rare as they have been artificially made to be. Right. They can be found all over the world. Um, some of the major sites are uh, in Russia, yeah, Borneo, mm-hmm. Australia, Canada, Brazil, mm-hmm. Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Canada? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and they're often found in these things called Archean Cratons in the center of a continent. Well, Africa, too. we got to say Africa. Oh, yeah. It's like Africa's huge. 50%, I think, come from Africa. For sure. I, I can't believe I left that out. That's all right. Um, but if you, you're you more likely to find diamonds in the center of the continent and these things called Archean Cratons. Right. Cratons. And an Archean Craton is uh, basically a horizontal piece of Earth that is kind of relatively immune to geological events like earthquakes and right. uh, tectonic movement and all that. And this is uh, usually a pretty good site to find diamonds. Yeah, it says here they they're found in the center of most of the seven continents. Six of them. Yeah, like why didn't they just say there's only seven things? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, when they find diamonds, Josh, they're rough. Have you ever seen a big rough diamond stone? It's a crystal on TV. Yeah, it doesn't look like much. Uh, it looks like a crystal, like that you would dig up from the earth or something. Like quartz, yeah. Yeah, um, but you have to process it. Um, Obviously, by by carving the sucker up, and then uh, making it pretty, and then making it shiny, right? Which is quite we'll get specifically into that, but that's that's the base basics. Well, you said um, that's one of the things you like about diamonds is the the craftsmanship. The, yeah, yeah. Sure. and it takes a lot. You want to talk about it? All right, cutting diamonds, Josh. Which again, this is not the easiest thing in the world to do, and it takes well, no. some special techniques, like cleaving. Yeah, this is my favorite. Cleaving is when they um, they take uh, the diamond at its, at its weakest point, which is the uh, tetrahedral plane. We'll talk about that in a second. Oh, you know about that? Because I looked it up, and I, I can only come to guesses about what that is. Oh, well, I don't know what the plane is, but I know <clears throat> I just figured it was the point where the – well, I guess I don't know. So, I sort of assumed it was where the, the, there were fewer links of the atoms. Yeah, I think like – so the, the lattice the – lattice, um, Connection between carbon atoms and a diamond is what makes it strong. Yeah. So each carbon atom is connected to four others. Yeah, instead of just one. It's like the um, the five side of a dice right. of a die, right? I connect all those, and you have you st- you're on your way to, to forming a diamond. Whereas with carbon or graphite, 
um, the five are connected in a ring. So one's only connected to one other one. Right. Which is why it's weaker, right? Right. But if you look, if you kind of plot out um, a, a tetrahedral um, latticework of mm-hmm. carbon atoms, you, if you go straight across, there's a point where each of them, where you're only cutting through one atom oh, okay. at a time. There's only one connection. Yeah, that's got to be it then. That's what I would think it is. Yeah. That's my guess. I think you're right, Josh. So they find this tetrahedral plane where it's weakest, and they uh, hold the diamond in like cement or wax or something. They cut a little groove, and then they put a steel blade in that groove, and in one big whack, they cleave this sucker into two pieces. Man, I'll bet that is nerve-wracking work. I couldn't find a video of it. Oh, yeah? Well, I could imagine it's probably pretty well guarded. I mean, I saw an old video from, like, old black and white thing, but it was, I don't know if there was a new method now or whatever. Yeah. Uh, then uh, sometimes you can't uh, just cleave it. Sometimes there's no plane of weakness, and you have to saw it. And there's probably always a plane of weakness in the diamond, but for the angle that you're trying to get to, I yeah, imagine that like, there's sense. not necessarily going you, – you can't find that tetrahedral plane. Yeah, because you're cutting it in specific places for a reason. You're not just like, hey, let me cut this sucker in two. Right. You're cutting it very specifically for what you want the end result to be, whether it's – I want to get five different cut diamonds out of this single rock or whatever. Yeah, and and you need to think like that many oh, yeah. steps ahead. And for each diamond, you the first thing you do is figure out where the table is, which is the top of the diamond. It's the most exposed surface area. Yeah. And then you figure out what the girdle is, and that is the part of the diamond with the largest diameter. Right. Um, and once you once you establish those two things, then everything else is just make sense because there's just a certain way to cut diamonds. Yeah. And you're not going to go crazy and make like a little squirrel. Diamonds are shaped like diamonds. Exactly. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've got, you've got cleaving, you've got sawing and sawing, you're using a special tool called a phosphor bronze blade yeah. that rotates at 15,000 RPM. I did see this online. That's crazy. It's pretty crazy. Um, you can also use a laser, but that takes forever. Um, yeah, I got the feeling lasers aren't really the way to go. Which is surprising. I thought it'd be like, whoop, whoop. Yeah, exactly. You know? I've seen uh, seen James Bond movies. <laughs> lasers can do all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, if you want to shape your diamond, which you will want to do if you ever want to sell it, um, if it's one of the lucky 20% of diamonds, because mm-hmm. I think it's only 20% that actually make it to, to market. Oh, is it that? Yeah, and 80% are used for like saw blades and other industrial uses. Abrasives. Abrasives, yeah. Sure. Diamond dust. Uh, Bowl, uh, bowling balls. Liberace's really? pianos. <laughs> uh, brooding or cutting uh, gives the diamond the shape. And brooding is when you do it by hand. And uh, cutting is when you use a machine. And I couldn't find out how many diamonds are hand cut, like percentage-wise. I'm curious about that. Yeah. I don't know if it's a lost art or if that just means it's a higher quality because it's hand cut. Yeah. Do you know? No, I don't. Okay. Both of them seem to use uh, a, a lot of human intervention, though, brooding and cutting. And other diamonds. So brooding is kind of like taking two pipes, filling them with cement, and then putting a diamond in it so that there's just a little bit sticking out, mm-hmm. and then rubbing them together, using a diamond to cut a diamond. Yeah, which is the only thing you can cut a diamond with. Do you want to talk about the most scale real quick? Yeah. Because you can only cut a diamond with a diamond because, as we said... Um, it's pretty much the hardest substance on earth, right? Anything beneath that is not going to scratch it. And there's actually um, a scale to uh, describe the strength 
of um, minerals by a guy named uh, Friedrich Mohs. Yeah, the Mohs hardness scale. Yeah, and he was a German mineral mineralogist, mineralogist. Jeez, man, <laughs> from the 30s, I think, who created this, this scale. Yeah, it goes from one to ten, or although you said now eleven. I guess it goes to eleven. Well, it's eleven percent harder than diamond, so it's got to be above diamond. Right. It's got to be above diamond level. It's platinum level. Uh, we start out with talc. You can scratch talc with your fingernail. It's such a wimpy little thing. Uh, gypsum, uh, you can scratch with your fingernail, barely. Uh, calcite, you can scratch it with a copper coin. Fluoride. And it, and it scratches a copper coin. Oh, okay. Which is a measurement as That's well. That's quite a duel. Uh, yeah. Like, I'll get you. I'll get you <laughs> Calcite back. versus copper. Uh, fluorite, uh, you cannot get scratched by copper coin, and it does not scratch glass. So it just kind of sits there. Yeah, doing its thing. Um, uh, apatite? I take it as appetite. Appetite? Either way. <laughs> I'm hungry. Um, it scratches glass, sort of, or just scratches glass, and it's easily scratched by a knife. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, I didn't understand what the word barely meant, and I was playing kickball, and one of like the older kids was like, man, just go out there and just barely kick the ball, and he was telling me to bunt, basically. <laughs> he kicked it like a bear would? No, I thought barely meant like to just just barely miss it, not just barely <laughs> make contact with something. So I kept going out there and like just perfectly, barely missing it, and the kid was going crazy. I'm like, I don't understand you. You're in my yard. Go home. <laughs> Is that your excuse for why you struck out at kickball growing up? I struck out at t-ball even. Wow. Yeah. And like, they give you like six strikes. <laughs> wow. And I, they still would be like, go sit down, Josh. Oh, that makes me feel bad. Um, orthoclase, Josh, is number six. Um, quartz is number seven. Then you got topaz, uh, corundum. And corundum then, is like sapphires and rubies. Yeah, and then the diamond. And that is the most hardness scale. And... Um, so, as you can see, since Diamond's the last, because the Mohs scale hasn't been updated, uh, the you have to use a diamond to, to cut a diamond. Right. Which some of those the industrial uses of diamonds is diamond cutting tools. Yeah, I have a diamond uh, saw blade. Crazy. I know. Nuts. You um, must be rolling in it. I'm loaded, dude. <laughs> it also has diamonds just uh, bedazzled all over the saw itself. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it spells Chuck and diamond. Uh-huh. Uh, so we talked about brooding and then, uh, cutting, uh, you would use a lathe, yeah. which is something that spins it around very fast. That's one of my favorite words. Lathe? Mm-hmm. I used to work with a wood lathe back in the day. Yeah. A lot of fun. And then you want to polish it if you want to, uh, oh, by the way, there's only five major cutting centers in the world. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Like if you're going to get your diamonds cut, they get shipped to New York, Bombay, Israel, Antwerp, or Johannesburg, generally. Okay. Johannesburg. Either way. Uh, so like I said, you want to polish it because you want it all shiny and pretty. And uh, it's a polishing wheel coated with, uh, once again, diamond powder. Yep. Are you starting to see a pattern here? Diamonds cut diamonds. Um, so once you once your diamonds cut and you say, hey, this is a pretty good diamond. I'm going to try to sell it to somebody for, you know. Con- Too much money. Right, exactly. Um, one of the things that you're going to use to describe this diamond and – increase its value are the four C's, right? That's right. You've got cut, clarity, carrot, and color. And we'll start with cut. So basically cut is how well a diamond is cut and what shape it's cut in. Yeah. There's all sorts of different cuts, all sorts. including the most confusing of all, the emerald cut diamond. Yeah. Um, 
And the one we, we were referring to initially was, I think, just the round cut. That's yes. like the standard diamond f- f- shape. Okay. So you've got cut, right? Yeah. You have clarity, and that measures um, the diamond's natural flaws. That's a big C. <laughs> so um, you have the flaws are also called inclusions. Yeah. And you have uh, flawless down to uh, slightly included. Right. In between, you have very, very slight. Very slight, and then slightly, and then there's different degrees of that, like VS1, VVS2, right. SI2, and it just keeps going until you're like, mm, you need to, we'll use this as, as a saw blade. I like a little flaw in my diamond. Well, that's nice, Chuck. That just shows what kind of guy I am. That's also a way that diamonds are um, cataloged, like a specific diamond is cataloged and tracked is by its inclusions. Right. Because they're frequently for for diamonds that are sold as gemstones, uh-huh. they're the flaws are so infrequent that they're almost like um, birthmarks. Right, they're they're birthmarks for diamonds. <laughs> uh, carrot, Josh is the third C, and that is the weight. Uh, a carrot is about two hundred milligrams. Right, and that actually came out of India. Um, the carob seed was used as a weight for um, right. for diamonds, and that became carrot instead of carob. And then you've got uh, color. And we were talking about transparent diamonds. So basically what you've got is totally colorless, which means it's 100% carbon. There's no other mineral or element in this diamond. Right. Um, all the way to uh, a light yellow. And that's ranked by, from D to Z. Yeah, it's so weird. I've never understood that. I don't know. There's a lot I don't understand about diamonds. And then you also have transparency, mm-hmm. luster, and dispersion of light. Fire. Yeah. Fire, that's right. Fire, I think brilliance. Isn't that the other word for it? Probably. And that's all dispersion of light? Yeah, I think fire is, which is means you can see different, you know, when you hold it up to light, you see different colors. And it's like the disco ball quality of the diamond. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we, we also mentioned that uh, the... Truly rare diamonds are colored ones, and they come in like a, a rainbow of expensiveness. <laughs> yeah. There's black diamonds. Mm-hmm. There's yellow diamonds. Even though transparent diamonds go down to light yellow, those aren't yellow diamonds. Yeah. A yellow diamond's a yellow diamond. They're awesome. Um, you've got pale green, pink, Yeah, violet. pink are popular uh, with rich people. Are they? what I've seen. Yeah. They go with chihuahuas. I think J-Lo had a big pink diamond Yeah, from one of her husband's. Is that right? I think so. You track such things? No, I don't. I don't know why I knew that. <laughs> you a Benefer fan? You know how things get caught up in your brain that should not be there, and then you can't forget it no matter what. Yeah. Now you'll always remember that. Mm, hold on, I'm getting rid of it right now. Ah, shoot! Donkey eating grass and done. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the history and why diamonds are uh, haven't always been so popular with the Americans. Um, they were not always a uh, an engagement ring. No, before that it was like colored gemstones. Yeah, like a nice looking ruby. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you give that to somebody you love? Sure, look at it. All right. It's gorgeous. And then De Beers came about. That's right. Uh, De Beers is a cartel, if you don't know what a cartel is. Founded by a Mr. Rhodes, who um, Rhodesia is named after, and the Rhodes Scholarship. That's right. And De Beers is the family name of the people whose farm he bought initially in South Africa. If you don't know what a cartel is, it is a uh, syndicate of competing firms that all gets together and says, hey, let's fix prices on all our stuff. Yeah. It's let's, illegal. Let's here. create a monopoly and let's run the show. Yes. And that's what De Beers is. It is a 
consol- De Beers Consolidated Mines mm-hmm. Ltd. pretty much says it all. It's the all the the different. Uh, well, not all. Up until like 2000, it was mostly all. Yeah, I think now it's something like uh, 80, 70 to 80 percent of all the diamonds are controlled by them. They produce yeah. like 50 percent. I think it used to be like 90 to 95 percent. But they also go around and buy up diamonds from the market and sit on them. And then every year through these things called um, sites, I think, the sales, because there's only 200 people or groups that are licensed to buy from De Beers. And they, they have like, I think, 10 sales a year yeah. where they say, you're, you 200 people are are allowed to come buy diamonds from us. And they so tightly control the market that they control the price of diamonds. Yep. And that's why diamonds are so expensive. Ten weeks out of the year. That's it. Is that right? Yeah. And they could buy in packages from, I think, like one to 200 million or something like that. That's crazy. Of uncut diamonds. And then the site holders take them to go get created by people who cleave. That's right. Uh, and in 2000, um, I said that their monopoly sort of ended. Um, Russia, Canada, Australia basically said enough of this, and they went outside to beers, and that essentially ended their big monopoly, although they still, uh, what is it, half the world diamond supply, and they control about two-thirds of the whole world market. Right. But it used to be close to 100%. How did they do this, Chuck? How does a company do this? I mean, obviously by buying diamonds, but how did they take the diamond and make it the, this precious sought-after gemstone. Well, when you control supply, obviously, you can say it's rare. Mm-hmm. But then they did it through clever marketing, basically. Yeah. That's about all there was to it. Diamond, a diamond is forever in the 1940s uh, was voted in 2000 as the ad campaign slogan of the 20th century. That's pretty big. That's huge. And that, that basically sold the American public and Japan... Japan in the 60s, yeah. America in the late 40s. Sold them on the fact that a diamond was uh, what you needed to save up two months' salary for <laughs> and uh, and spend on your wife for her engagement ring. Yeah. Or on your fiancé. Right. Um, and then following that, De Beers said, hey, we should get rid of the aftermarket. And they said, by the way, that diamond you bought as an engagement ring, that's a family heirloom. You want to hang yeah. on to that, which keeps... Diamonds off of the market. And it's what's so, this is why I said I don't like diamonds. It's just none of it was true. Yeah. It was just a cartel that got together and said, we're going to snow the American and Japanese public on the fact that these are really rare, precious gems. Right. When they should have just said, you know what? We've got lots of diamonds, actually. And appreciate the craftsmanship and pay a decent price for it. And everyone's happy. It doesn't sound like something the beers would say. <laughs> no. Um, so in addition to the fact that the the industry is virtually controlled by a um a cartel um diamonds also have they routinely get bad press for um conflict diamonds blood diamonds yeah which are essentially diamonds that are mined illegally to fund uh, as far as um the people who oversee such things uh rebel groups that are that seek to destabilize legitimate governments, right? Yeah, we have a whole article on that. I think. Yeah, our, our I think our blood diamonds making a comeback. A yeah, comeback or something. Yeah. Um. So they've come up with this thing called the uh the what is it the Kimberly the Kimberly process certification scheme. Right. And scheme. I, n- I hate it when they use scheme like that. Even though it's correct, it always sounds bad when <laughs> you use the word scheme. But it's really just a plan. And they call it the Kimberly Process. The UN and the Conflict-Free Diamond Council 
got together to basically monitor the diamond at every point of its production process so they know basically the birth certificate of the diamond all the way through to the, till it's on the little lady's finger. So supposedly that's what's supposed to happen, but really what the Kimberly um the Kimberly process entails now is getting governments to control their imports and exports of diamonds and certify them. So yeah. like if you are shipping a, a certification or a bunch of diamonds that each and each diamond doesn't have a certification, you can't get the shipment. Um, you're supposed to package them in tamper-free um, or tamper-proof uh, containers. Right. So people can't slip blood diamonds into these shipments mid-shipment. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but the problem is, is what you were saying, like they control every aspect. That's not true. Cutting, polishing, um, all of these things aren't overseen. Oh, really? Yeah, which leads to a lot of possibility. You can introduce blood diamonds at the beginning of the stream, and they just become bona fide through a shipment. So when the UN says that there are 99.8% of diamonds now on market are conflict-free, is that it, uh, not true? Also, the other criticism of the Kimberley process is it depends on your, your definition of conflict. Right. The UN and the uh, Kimberley scheme people are basically saying it's a rebel group that can produce a blood diamond. And this is a this is a human rights organization above all else. Yeah. But they're turning a blind eye to human rights abuses by these legitimate governments like Robert Mugabe's um government of Zimbabwe. Right. Uh Hugo Chavez apparently uh his government in Venezuela has some human rights abuses regarding diamonds, but these are still considered legitimate diamonds. Right. Not blood diamonds even though they are still conflict diamonds. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, in uh, 2001, um, Bill Clinton signed Executive Order 13194, which basically said America is not, uh, no longer going to get any roughs from Sierra Leone. And then uh, W came along uh, later that year and signed another executive order saying no more roughs from Liberia. Hmm. And then in 2003, we passed in the United States the Clean Diamond Trade Act, which supposedly has legislation that helps implement the Kimberly process. Yeah. and But it you, sounds like a big scam now. If you buy a... It's not a scam. It's just flawed. Okay. It has inclusions. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Um, and if you buy a diamond, you can um, you can request to see its um, Kimberly process certificate. Yeah. Um, another way to get around this altogether to make sure that there's no way that your blood... that your diamond's a blood diamond is to buy synthetic. Yeah. And there's plenty of them, plenty of different varieties out there. Yep. Growing up in the 70s, uh, we all heard about the cubic zirconia, yeah. <laughs> the CZ. And uh, it's a lab gem. It was made in a lab, and it's been on the market since 76. Yeah, the Russians created it, right? Uh, yeah, and it's hard. It's an 8.5 on the most scale. Um, and the problem with the, the CZ is it's too perfect. Yeah. So perfect it looks fake. It's like the diamond that hit the uncanny valley. Right. Like there's something wrong with it because it's just too good. Yeah. So, I mean, it looks artificial when you look at it because it is. they have manufactured it too perfectly. So nowadays, sometimes they will put slight inclusions in there, yeah. which is just so funny. That's like the like the new stuff, that like the hat you get at Abercrombie that's frayed. Oh, yeah. On the bill. Woof. Um, there's also moissanite. Which is named after Dr. Henri Moisson. Yeah. Who discovered diamonds in a meteorite in Arizona in 1893 and somehow managed to replicate it. Yeah. And if, if it was, 
just moissanite, like the natural moissanite, it would be one of the rarest things on the planet. The asteroid version or the meteorite version? Yeah, the non-man-made moissanite. Yeah. Because um, it's essentially just silicon carbide, but it's really, really rare to get the real thing. It's like a crystallized version of diamonds. Yeah. And so in the 80s, a company called Cree Incorporated developed a way of producing silicon carbide crystals, and moissanite was now available as of the late 90s to, you know, to take the place of your natural diamond. Hot. Are they? I, I couldn't get a price on those. I, I don't think moissanite is cheap. Uh, I don't know. I know that man-made diamonds, that's a different class. It's a different category. Oh, from even moissanite? Yeah. Moissanite and cubic zirconia are um, synthetic. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Man-made. No. Man-made yeah. is synthetic. Cubic, cubic zirconia and moissanite are simulants. They're not actually made from Carbon. carbon. Man-made diamonds are made from carbon, right. but they're made in a few days rather than, you know, eons. Um, and they are structurally diamonds, yeah. so much so that the Gemological Institute of America recognizes them as diamonds. Yeah. But they sell for about 30% of a natural diamond. Um, and those are, I guess, second most expensive. So I would think moissanite is cheaper than that. Probably. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the man-made are... Sometimes so hard to tell, uh, apart from the real thing, that uh, gemologists can't even tell and jewelers can't tell. And so they are now selling machines that help <laughs> jewelers uh, determine whether or not it's a real diamond or it's man-made. And who makes that machine, Josh? I couldn't begin to guess. <laughs> De Beers. Da Beers. In November last year, um, late last year, the Anglo-American Company, which is a global mining company, acquired... Oh, it was the Oppenheimer family, who was one of the original. The Oppenheimer Fund people? No, it was from the, they were one of the original families for the De Beers cartel, I think. Gotcha. Um, but they bought out the Oppenheimer family's uh, 40% of their stake in De Beers for $5.1 billion in cash. In cash? Yeah, not like stock certificates or Jeez. future promises. And now they raised their stake to 85% because they already had 45 so the Oppenheimers are no longer part of that. Wow. But they are rolling in the cash. They went straight. Um, I think we would be remiss. There's plenty of famous diamonds, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about probably the most famous diamond, the Hope Diamond. The Pink Panther? Oh. The, the, is that real? Uh, I don't know. It okay. was a real movie. Yeah, a really good movie. About a diamond. And a great cartoon. Yeah. Um, but the Hope Diamond, have you seen it at the Smithsonian? Yeah. It's awesome. 45 yeah, it's cool. carats. Which is big, um, and it was uh, there. It has a curse associated with it. Do you know that? Yeah. Um, there was a newspaper in 1911. Um, well, I guess several of them wrote about the curse of the Hope Diamond. That's when it started to come about. Um, and in a book in 1929, the mystery of the Hope Diamond really like kind of established its right um, lore in popular culture. But um, starting with a guy named Jean-Baptiste Tavernier. He stole the Hope Diamond and was um, torn apart by wild dogs. That was the first bad thing that happened associated with the Hope Diamond. Uh, Louis the Sixteenth uh, lost his head during the Revolution. Louis the like really lost his head. Yeah. Louis the Fourteenth had it. He died of gangrene. Um, George the Fourth died deep in debt. Um, all the way to uh, one of my favorites, uh, Mademoiselle Lorenz Ledoux, 
borrowed the diamond from her lover, Ivan, who had been murdered by Russian revolutionaries, and she was murdered before he could be murdered by Russian revolutionaries. Wow. Um, And then all the way down to the um, Abdul Hamid II, the Sultan of Turkey, he paid 400 grand for it, and it just brought horrible luck to everybody from his... um, the, his favorite member of his harem to his royal guards. Um, and then finally, Harry Winston got his hands on it from Pierre Cartier. Oh, uh, yeah. And Harry Winston decided to just end it all and send this thing to the Smithsonian. And he sent the Hope Diamond just regular postal. What? Regular post. Shut Didn't up. tell him it was coming. I mean, they knew that they were negotiating. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll send it. And it just arrived very unceremoniously, and a guy named James Todd is the mailman who brought it, wow. the Hope Diamond, to the Smithsonian, and um, he later uh, crushed his leg in a truck accident, <laughs> his head was injured in an automobile accident, and he lost his home in a fire. Wow. I'm not laughing at him. Boy, the Madden curse has nothing on that. No. That's crazy. No way. So that's it for diamonds. You got anything else? Nah. What are we at, like an hour and a half now? Yeah. Okay, let's end it then. Um... If you want to learn more about diamonds, type diamond into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, and it'll bring up a lot of cool stuff. And I said search bar, so it's time for listener mail. Yeah, in addition to diamonds, it was blood diamonds, and there was also an article about diamond thieves. Yeah. I want to look into that. Have you? Yeah, it was kind of a history of diamond thefts. It was neat. Yeah. Um, okay, this is from uh, Liz, and I'm going to call this uh, pickpocketing. Uh, for spring break during my junior year of high school, I went to Europe as a part of a group trip organized by my school's art club. Uh, there were maybe 30 of us in total, spending three days each in London, Paris, and Madrid. Before we left, our art teacher, who had put together uh, the entire trip, warned us repeatedly about pickpockets. We even had an in-club project where we made little bags for our passports to hang around our necks and under our shirts. Uh, during this trip, uh, we did have occasional brushes with suspicious people including one lady who stepped onto a crowded subway train, pushed against my mother, and immediately started unzipping her purse, which was hanging in front of her. Uh, When she saw my mom looking directly at her, she turned and walked off the train right before the doors closed. About five or six seconds in that entire exchange. Uh, The big story, though, was one night in Madrid, where a group of the adult uh, chaperones and anyone old enough to drink went out to a pub. By sheer chance, the Swedish rugby team was also there that night. Uh, the smallest among them was about six foot six, and they were all built like Mack trucks, and they were already very drunk and very rowdy, uh, but also very friendly. So you got big, burly, drunk, friendly rugby dudes. Swedes? Uh, they were Swedish, yes. Yeah. But that was a handsome group of guys. <laughs> now, I had went back to our hotel, but this was a story related to me. Our art teacher was chatting with the coach of the rugby team. She felt a hand reach inside of her purse. She grabbed at it. Uh, as it was pulling out and realized that the pickpocket had her wallet, passport, and two passports of my classmates. The entire team rushed the guy and took him outside, where they recovered at least two other wallets that had been stolen at the same bar. I can't say what else they did, but I'm fairly certain he wasn't picking any pockets for a while. That is from Liz in Philadelphia, a.k.a. New York Light. Nice. Thank you very much, Liz. Yeah. That was uh, pretty cool. It's a good pickpocketing story. Yeah, go Swedish rugby team for beating up people who steal. Yeah. Any, anybody who beats up people who steal, it's pretty great. Unless it's one of those kind of like morally gray things from Les Miserables, you know? Right. It's tough. Yeah. Uh, well, if you have a cool uh, story about um, 
I don't know, Western justice doled out by Swedes or other nationalities, we want to hear about it. Sure. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stuff you should know. And you can uh, send us an email yeah. at stuffpodcast at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?